it's very important for people to hear, as adult children of divorce, that was not okay, that was an injustice that was done to you. Children should grow up in an intact family, so it's not strange for you to think this. You're not being selfish by thinking that that was painful, and I'm sorry that happened to you. And if the church can do that, and if society as a whole can do that, that brings an awful lot of healing. For children of divorce to talk about their experience, it's something that's so hard for us because we've lived our lives to protect and help and support and not add any more pain to our parents. Talking about being a child of divorce is so risky and difficult, and it's like a minefield, really, to even bring it to your consciousness, let alone to verbalize it and get it out there. We're never so wholly damaged that we can't love. Not only are we God's beloved, but I like to remind people that we're also, because of that, capable of great love. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. This is the second episode on adult children of divorce. If you missed the first episode, stop, go back, and listen to the first one so you can hear the background of the three people that we're going to speak to today. Beth, Dan, and Leanne are so awesome that they're willing to share with you some of their struggles and challenges out of a desire to help other people in similar situations. They want to tell other adult children of divorce, you are not alone. We're going to start with some struggles about self-worth. They sometimes have issues with self-esteem and feeling like they're important, kind of lack of confidence. Some of them get very anxious about family topics. That was Leanne. Beth's experience with this expressed itself in self-reliance. It did come up in engagement, but I still was under the impression that I was good and I was fine and and I I got this. You know what I mean? That whole self-reliance was still very much front and center. Similarly, Dan struggles with perfectionism. Thinking if I was perfect, the other person would stay. Um, And that's a fool's errand because there's no perfect person. So, again, I put a lot of pressure whenever I made mistakes. So I had to get over that and just realize that I'm finite, and yet I can still be loved. Another thing that affects adult children of divorce is guilt for something they didn't do. Children feel guilty about the divorce. My dad, in his well-intentioned state to try to explain what was going on, would always try to rationalize the separation divorce in this way. He would say, you know, I did this for you. I did this for you. Um, this is what's best. You, you know, you didn't, I don't want you growing up with us fighting all the time. I did this for you. The thing is, I took that literally that somehow I gave him the impression I wanted this. And so I was racking my brain and, um, you know, I would much prefer them together, even if, if they were fighting within certain limits, but I definitely didn't want the separation and divorce. Um, of course, ultimately I want them to love each other. This is a false guilt. In the sense that guilt is meant to tell us when we have acted wrongly and someone's parents' divorce is not them acting wrongly. But the guilt can also come about their reaction about it. It may be because before the divorce they expressed some displeasure with the conflict. That certainly didn't mean that they wanted a divorce, but it's hard for a kid to distinguish. Also, I hate to say it, but some parents do blame the children for the divorce. Oh, you were such a troublemaker that... You caused our fighting. I know some cases like that. 
Sorry, you're the grown-ups. Don't go blaming the kids, y'all. And all of us human beings struggle with being vulnerable. One way of avoiding being vulnerable is to be hyper-vigilant. This is Beth. There are certain coping mechanisms that I realized over time that I had. One of them is hypervigilance. As a child, I would walk into a new situation, a new home, you know, moms or dads or the friend's house, aunt and uncle's grandparents, just a new situation. And I had this innate ability to read the lay of the land, faces, body language, different things that people did and take it into myself, analyze it, and then know what I needed to be, what I needed to bring, what I could and could not do and say and things like that. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, right? So I brought that to my marriage. And so, for instance, like my husband would sigh. For him, he's just thinking about maybe something dumb he did at work. But for me, I hear him sigh and I'm internalizing it and thinking, oh, great, what did I do wrong? What do I need to say? How can I make it better? You know, I'm like five steps Uh ahead. And yes, women in general tend to be five steps ahead of everybody Uh in terms of our thought process. But I feel Uh like as a child of divorce and someone who's developed this sense of hypervigilance, I would always see that whatever he was bringing or projecting and take it inside of me. And then I would use it as a way to prepare for the worst. Of course, this is all not conscious. There'd be times I would just lash out at him with an extreme reaction, seemingly out of nowhere. And it was all because there'd been like a little thing that would have taken me back. And then my my reaction would be growing inside of me and then it would just lash out. Conflict is an obvious place that you experience vulnerability. But what about joy? Here's Dan. I had this self-protective behavior called foreboding joy. Foreboding joy. This is the idea, and has happened so much in my life that You actually mistrust joy. When things start happening in your life that are good, you start thinking of the worst case scenario, that things are going to get away from you. So like case in point, I still struggle with this today. You know, I'll think of the worst thing happening to Zelly. We're really enjoying each other's company outside, playing with one another on a swing set. And I'm worried she's going to fall off and crack her skull. (laughs) So then I can't really enjoy the moment. And that's actually a self-protective behavior because you're, too scared of being vulnerable and actually delighting in the joy because you're afraid something's going to be taken away. I think that term was coined by Brene Brown, whom you may have seen or heard doing TED Talks about vulnerability. Dan explains why he thinks that he experiences this so profoundly. Well, one, the divorce is happening. It always surprises, almost always surprises us, even in high conflict marriages, it surprises us when it happens. So when something as good as your parents' relationship can be taken away instantly, you feel like any joy can be taken away instantly and be caught by surprise. But it's also the case, and a lot of adult and divorce feel this way too, that they saw a lot of their parents blow up and have big arguments about really small things. So you're enjoying your time, you're enjoying your time, and all of a sudden dad gets mad at the way the food's cooked. And boom, the whole evening's ruined. So that teaches you to distrust the joyful moments. I think Dan's on to something here, because Brene Brown is also an adult child of divorce. And when I read in one of her books about foreboding joy, I was like, nope, I don't have that experience. Adult children and divorce are so scared of being vulnerable, of sharing that deep part of their story in life. And they feel that you're going to judge them, that you're somehow damaged and flawed from beginning in relationships. And that's fundamentally not true. We're never so wholly damaged that we can't love. You know, that's one of the great truths of our Catholic faith that we have to keep going back to that 
not only are we God's beloved, but I like to remind people that we're also, because of that, capable of great love. And uh, I think that latter part, Dolce and Doris really need to hear that they too are capable of great love. And God will give you the means, even if uh, you weren't shown the right model. You might have to work at it, but God will give you the means. And here's an interesting challenge related to loving yourself. Beth is talking here about her husband. I still grapple with this, his love. Why would you love me? I don't understand that. You know, even still, I'd be like, oh, I love you. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why did you say that right now? Where is that coming from? What does that mean? For a long time, anytime someone would say I love you, it would just be kind of pretty words. Okay, sure, you might just be saying that because you feel you have to. Or okay, sure, you might just be saying that because you want something from me. It's very conditional. But just resting in my husband's love is something that I have to keep reminding myself. It's okay. This is true. He means this. I'm worthy of this. So now we're going to turn specifically to challenges that adult children of divorce experience in their relationships. First of all, within the family itself. The trauma and the pain wasn't just a one-time event. It wasn't like one thing that happened to me that really destabilized me. For all of us children of divorce, it's a lifetime of figuring this out. When you're a child and then a teenager and then you're a young adult, okay, my parents, one's here, one's there, one's remarried, one's not, whatever it is. And then, okay, now I'm engaged and now I'm married and now I have my own children and then there's my in-laws, but then there's my mom and my dad and haves and steps and how do we spend the time? How do we spend the holidays? How do we do this? How do we do that? And how do we honor them and really obey the fourth commandment? How do we stay true to our love for them? My entire experience as an adult child of divorce and talking to hundreds of other adult children of divorce on retreats and things like this is that it's a lifelong grief. It's something that happens not just at the time of the divorce when your parents divorce and the aftermath of it going between two homes when you're a kid, but it rears its head every holiday, every milestone, and it keeps coming up. I mean, even when they get to old age, how am I going to take care of my parents? Because that becomes a greater burden for adult children divorce because they parents don't often have support system of each other. So it falls on the kids to take care of them. So anyways, it's a lifelong grief that keeps coming up and up and up. One thing I really, really wanted on my wedding day was one picture of my whole family together. My mom and my dad and my stepfather, my stepmother, my half-siblings, my step-siblings, everyone. I just wanted one picture where everyone could stand together and, yes, still be their own separate families, but just together. I just really wanted that. She did get that picture, by the way. One of the things we all have to learn to do as adults is to establish healthy boundaries. Needing to break free from being the emotional confidant of your parents so you can free your heart to be emotionally available for a significant other. And that's going to look different for each situation, so I can't give you a ton more. Yeah, we'd have to have a talk about boundaries. And you really don't have to please your parents. Really. I disappoint mine all the time. It's okay. Here's Leanne. One of the things that happens when you're growing up with divorce in your family, the parents are trying to figure out what's going on in their lives, and they might be going through a difficult divorce, they might be dealing with courts and all kinds of things, and the children see all of the suffering that's happening with their parents, and they step into this role as kind of a pleaser, and, and they try to make sure that their parents are happy, and they try to 
support them and they tend to neglect or hide what's going on with themselves. So most of the people in our Facebook groups are very well-functioning adults, but they are very good at hiding what's going on with them. So they're very afraid, for example, that someone will find out that they're in these Facebook groups because they wouldn't want to hurt their parents' feelings. So let's talk about conflict. I had to learn what healthy conflict was. I told you I had a problem with anger. You know, anger can be a uh, self-protective behavior that's unhealthy. On account of my wound, what did I want to do? I wanted to self-protect rather than give. And that's the heart of love is giving yourself, being known and seen for who you are. But that's very counterintuitive to us because we're wounded. We want to protect ourselves from it rather than risk being hurt again. And of course, we saw our parents exploit each other's vulnerabilities. Dan had learned to deal with conflict with anger. An incredible anger. A lot of anger. Um, of course, it would bleed over into your relationships. The men that are in our groups often discuss that they didn't have a father around to show them how to be a husband and a father, and that they've really suffered with that. They've had anger issues. They've had all kinds of things that have come out of it. Other adult children of divorce just try to avoid conflict as much as possible. Conflict scares the hell out of us. <laughs> and so we have different ways of coping with it. We can get defensive and very angry. We can avoid it. It is really important for adult children divorce to learn how to risk conflict if you're the avoiding type, but also how to do healthy conflict if you're the angry kind of type. Someone who has had their parents divorce because of conflict is afraid to approach a problem and deal with it because that might mean the end of the relationship. That's in the back of their mind anyway. If I push this conflict too much, if I try to figure this out, I could push this person so far that the spouse might leave. So that is often discussed where people are afraid to handle a certain topic in their marriage. And then when we talk about how to do it, then they can go in there and try to work on different things. But they tend to be conflict avoiders <laughs> because of that very fact. They've seen conflict leads to end, the end of a relationship, and that's frightening, of course. Beth may have started out as an avoider, but when she married Ted and was confident in the permanence of their vows, well, she explored it. I think with my husband, I just felt, you know, over time, I had this safety of, okay, we don't ever say the D word. He's not going anywhere. So finally, I had like a safe space to explore emotions and explore mm -hmm. my feelings. But because that's something I'd never done before, it was like the bomb waiting to go off because I didn't know how to temper them or speak rationally about how I was feeling. It all just came out. So that's got to be fun for everyone. For so long, I bottled things up, and I didn't allow myself to feel good, bad, hard, stressful, joyful. It was all just kind of contained. And so um, just sifting through emotions and realizing, you know what, it's okay to feel it doesn't mean I'm a bad person if I'm angry and I show it. Trying to come to terms with how I'm feeling and realizing that emotions are a part of the way God made us. Emotions give you information. And they're there for a reason. They're actually tipping us off to something. And instead of running away or stashing them deep in a dark recess of my soul, just being like, whoa, why am I like so annoyed by this right now? What is this coming from? What is the message I'm taking from this person or experience? 
And instead of being like, oh, this maybe is reminding me of a time as a child when I felt this or a time where I was told this or I believed this lie and my adult psyche is reacting against that and rejecting that. And I could just say, yeah, forget it. I'm not going to deal with that. But I've come to a point where I realize if I don't deal with whatever I'm feeling and what's being brought to the surface now, it's just going to come back again. And it's going to come back in a fiercer, harder, yuckier way if I don't deal with it now. And conflict in marriage really can lead to growth and grace and a stronger relationship. Yeah, it scared me in the first year of marriage where we started having problems. We had conflicts when we were dating and it was good to see us work through that. And actually, I think that's a really good thing. I knew that basic good principles were the foundation, but we were still getting in these bad patterns. So, I mean, just being really honest here, you know, we, we sought out some help with therapists just to learn good communication skills. And boy, that gave me so much peace of mind. Dan and Bethany had a lot of stressors in their lives and were humble enough to seek help. They gave us a plan step by step. This is what you do in a conflict. And it seemed forced and it seemed very unnatural at first. But over time, it's become second habit. Now we're still working at it. It's not perfect, but we're a lot better. And I have a lot more peace now with conflict because like, okay, I now know a healthy way of doing it. And we're both committed to it. So we both sit down after we take a break. Also just learning to take a break. It sounds ridiculous, but it is not natural because when you're like super emotional, you you just want to go at it. Um, And that is so bad. Uh, And you can just save so much stress by just taking a break. but, But you have to work at that. We had to have a plan that we put up on the fridge that we went step by step and We'd sit down and have a communication on the couch and we'd go through this and it would diffuse the situation. And today we have a lot less arguments now. We still sometimes get in those bad habits and we have to sit down and and do it all over again. And you're kind of annoyed that you're in year eight and you're still doing this. But you know what? It's great because I know as annoying as those conflicts are, at the end of it, we're going to feel together. We're going to grow in some way. You both feel respected and loved a little bit more deeper. So... Yeah, I think having a plan, having an intentional plan, gave me a lot of peace and it's saved a lot of heartache in our marriage. It's important not to get discouraged if you're struggling with conflict. Don't beat yourself up with that. Just acknowledge it and come up with a plan. By the way, that's a great general rule for life. Don't beat yourself up about stuff. It doesn't usually help. If you start finding healing from some of these past wounds, your present relationships may have to shift. Ted and I, within our marriage throughout this, we've kind of had to push the reset button because all of a sudden I have opinions about things that I'm sharing. Whereas before I might have had opinions, but I'd kind of be afraid to share them. I think, oh, well, he's the head of the household, so he should know and he should have all the answers and he should just figure it out. Or my husband's nine years older than me, so he's got more life experience. So he knows everything because he's dealt with this more than I have. Whereas now I can be like, you know what? No, no, I know. I think this has to be like this, and here are the three reasons why. Whereas before I might have felt that, I might have said that, but I wouldn't have been able to articulate it. It would have just been a jumbled, extreme emotion mess. Like, oh, I don't know, you know, I just kind of come undone in order to make my point. Whereas now I've got more of a confidence because of the solid ground of healing that's taking place within me. I just feel freer to be the person God created me to be. The glory of God is man truly alive, as St. Irenaeus said. And I feel like I'm starting to become alive as a 41-year-old woman. 
God has done something and really touched me in a deep way. Happily, Beth's husband, Ted, has supported her journey 100%. For me, it was realizing, okay, I just need to have half a day or so every week. Now I call it my maintenance day, you know, where I have a sitter come and I go do my therapy, I go to adoration, I go to mass, sometimes I'll hit confession, spiritual direction. Sometimes I'll exercise after all that, too, take care of my body, too, and that's my sweat therapy. That's what I call that. But I just made it a priority. And then, of course, Ted, when I – it was hard for me, just that first conversation of, I think I need to go to therapy, you know, not knowing what's he going to think of this. Is he going to think this is a priority, too? And thank God he did come alongside me. And her eight kids have gotten to see, okay, mom needs help, and there's no shame in that. I tell my children – you're probably going to need therapy because you were raised by imperfect parents. You were raised by imperfect parents, so guess what? You've got imperfections too. No problem. Brave people go to therapy. I'll help you pay for it. You want to schedule it now? We'll make it happen. Y'all know how much I love therapy, so. Therapy has been awesome, especially when you can find a therapist who's Catholic or Christian but also is a dang good therapist. They have a lot of different tools at their disposal with EMDR or internal family systems or dialectic behavioral theory. You know, there's all these different tools that they have that they can use to help you turn a corner and truly be healed. Okay, now that I got that commercial in, we're going to shift now to look at the impact of divorce on faith formation. There's great research on this. By the um, Public Religion Research Institute, there's a connection between children who experience their parents' divorce, who then become the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, unaffiliated with religion because they've lost faith in the church to address their wounds. So they feel forgotten. And so if the church has forgotten their wounds in this area, why should they take them you know, serious about anything else? I think this is really important, too, for the revitalization of the church, for evangelizing. And um, then these people, too, can turn around and offer that path of healing to others who are further away. Adult children divorce have a lot of gifts to give, especially when they find healing. This seems like an obvious thing when someone says it, but I never thought of it before. When the family is intact, as long as one parent thinks that faith is important and the other is willing to go along, the kids will have a pretty stable formation, at least in going to church on Sundays. But if there's a divorce, chances are pretty good that one parent is more quote-unquote religious than the other parent. Their religious upbringing usually becomes very weak. Even people who were brought up Catholic or brought up Christian, because the family uh, is no longer attending or no longer maybe even living out, sometimes that takes a while for the parents then to come back to the church if they do at all. And during that time, they're not necessarily attending to the children's spiritual needs and their their faith development. That is very common. If every other weekend you're with a parent who doesn't believe in God or go to Mass, or even ridicules people who do, such as your other parent, well, that doesn't give you a lot of confidence. Beth's experience was happily much better in that way. They took us to church every week, which is probably one of the greatest blessings of my life. But I think all of us would agree that as important as early education is with religion, it can tend to be kind of intangible until you're a little older. Growing up, it was the 80s where I went to Catholic school and I would hear God loves me, Jesus loved you, you know, 
blah, blah, blah. Everyone hears this. Everyone knows this. God is love, and it didn't really sink down. Okay, well, sure, God has to love everyone because he's God, and God is love. So, uh, yes, God loves me. But it wasn't, it wasn't like a tangible thing. I almost felt like it had conditions. God loves me if I do this for him or if I act this way or if I don't complain too much. Because my whole way of seeing love was just don't cause too many problems. Don't rock the boat. Don't make it too tricky for the people around you. Just do the best you can and and make others proud and happy. And, And if others are around you are happy, then you'll get a piece of that. Which brings us finally to the crux of the issue. You know, when you're a little kid, maybe an older toddler or something, and you're running, say, on pavement, and this little girl's running and she falls down. For me, as that little girl falling down, I realized, oh, I fell down. I got to get up. Get up quickly. Don't cry. Did anyone see that? Get up and take care of yourself and make it all better for yourself. There wasn't anyone around me that if I was falling down and hurt inside that could see that. Where would I go with that? But instead realizing as I've tried to work through a lot of this, no, that little girl falls down and really God the Father sees her. He's there and he comes and he scoops her up right away. He just holds her before she even has a chance to realize that that she's hurt and that really that did happen throughout my life, but I was too conscious of, no, 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 it's okay, I got this, you know, it's okay, nobody needs to help me here, got this under control, but just instead realized, like, no, when that little girl falls, God sees that and he swoops down and he picks her up and he kisses her boo-boos and puts band-aids on them and holds her and thinks to her and, and makes it better. He really does do that with all of us. But I think for us children of divorce, especially in my case, it's hard to feel that. It's hard to accept that. It's hard to truly know that deep down. There is hope for healing, and the church wants to help. Here's a little more about the retreat that Dan runs called Recovering Origins. When we give the retreats, we always say, you know, the most important part is that you be honest with God. In the retreat, they talk about the call to love. This is why the Catholic Church's teaching is so life-giving to me. Their emphasis on total self-giving made total sense. It resonated so much with my experience because I knew, yes, that is what I need to do because I'm self-protecting. That was really hard. That's why, like, at times I felt like total self-gift or working towards that in a relationship seemed romantic and possible. But I knew that was my salvation. And total self-gift here being with the Lord, I'm not saying uh, salvation is a relationship, but working towards that total self-gift with the Lord was the answer to overcoming my wounds. So it really resonated with my experience. And a big part of the retreat is meeting the other participants, especially if they're a little further on in the healing journey. Not just having the vision that the church gives us, but uh, seeing people who, who live this out. Seek out good models of love even while you're dating or while you're single. Uh, because these things can help, even if you're never blessed with marriage, these things will help you live life more fully in friendship. There are also relationships forged through the secret Facebook groups that Leanne moderates. 
they're usually very hopeful groups. There's a lot of discussion about faith and how that informs us about decisions regarding family. So that part has been really wonderful. We talk about whatever comes along. The groups are not about complaining or bemoaning a difficult family situation, but they don't ignore it. Before you get to the forgiveness part, you have to at least have an accurate understanding of what happened. And what happened was an injustice. Even though it might have been the best the parents could do, we're not really talking about that part of it. Right now, it's just we're discussing what happened to the child. So even if it was a horrible situation where separation had to occur, the child still suffered from the loss of a parent and a model. And forgiveness is not a one-time event. A real freeing moment for me for the anger was um, when I confessed that I was withholding forgiveness, which was really hard for me to do. And it's still something, you know, I think I struggle with to some degree. So it's still ongoing. The Facebook groups help the members to grow spiritually. When people are talking with one another about difficult times they're having with their families or in their own marriages or trying to reconcile with family members or just deal with their own past, the people in the groups will encourage books they've read and different things that they've heard and read that tell us that we embrace our cross in life. We don't run from it. When you avoid your cross, you just go to the next situation still with the same issues. And so when we embrace a cross, we realize it is part of our path to God. And that's what our faith is all about. It's about a cross. So we're going to suffer, and we need to embrace our suffering and say, okay, I'm not going to run from it. I'm going to embrace it and realize that I'm going to grow from this in my dependence on God and my understanding of how I need to think less about the things of the world. It's always between the person and God. And it's easier to hear that you have to bear your cross from someone whose cross has a similar shape. When we realize the most important things, then the suffering makes a little more sense. We can learn from it and we can become more holy ourselves. And we accept the suffering. We don't avoid it. We embrace the crosses we have in life. The way Leanne talked about these groups made me a little jealous that I couldn't join. It also just makes us feel like we have the Lord's arms around us and Mother Mary's there with us. The saints are there to, to guide us. It's always about the person and God. Well, I can't think of a better way than that to end. A huge thank you to Leanne Abel, Dr. Dan Miola, and Beth Tree. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor. Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.